Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Hello and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. This is Pete Coleman. As many of you know, I'm busy doing multiple projects with a common theme of exploration and travel to discover history and culture, not only here in Czech Republic, but across the globe. One of my larger projects that lasted several years involved me traveling to many World War I battlefields and museums around Europe during the centennial remembrances of the Great War. Tonight I share with you, our Bohemian audience, the conclusion of Past Access Presents The Great War Revisited, Part 2. If you have not listened to the audio feed of part one, it may be best to go do that right now. Or you can jump right on in to part two as I take you into 1916 and the Battle of Verdun and the Somme. Remember, you can always catch the visual version of this documentary on our Past Access YouTube channel, where you can also find some of our Bohemian videos as well. We hope you enjoy this program. Now, here's your host, Pete Coleman. Welcome back to Past Access Presents, The Great War Revisited. I'm Pete Coleman. At this point of the story, World War I has raged on for two years, amassing great loss of life on all sides. Entrenched in a bloody stalemate, these warring factions brought out the big guns. 1916 would see a huge spike in death and munitions used, starting with the nearly year-long battle of Verdun, whereas Germany was intent on bleeding the French white with loss of life. Verdun was a true gut check by the French, holding off the German offensive efforts through the unimaginable barrage of artillery. Between the French and the Germans, an estimated 40 to 60 million shells were used in nearly 10 months of fighting, resulting in 800,000 casualties. Verdun was a bloodbath in a war that was known to break all records of death and destruction. In the same year of 1916, the Battle of the Somme in northern France would set its own mark to stand as one of the more costly long-term engagements of the Great War. The summer of 16 was a litmus test for what the warring nations could take. In many ways, the victories earned felt like losses for the sacrifices made. With the French still occupied at Verdun, the British expeditionary force had to do their part in northern France to engage the Germans. A July 1st day that would see nearly 20,000 BEF killed. And that was just the opening act. The Battle of the Somme is where we pick up our story and our tour on these monumental killing grounds. To get a first-hand account of the Somme's battlefields and cemeteries, we must first make our way to the French capital of Paris. 
prepped and ready to hit the road, I'm eager to see the historic battlefields and museums just north of the city. You see, Parisians have a long history of prepping for the enemy at the gate. Be it the Franco-Prussian War, the Great War, or the Second World War, consecutive generations of Parisians would experience the anxious trepidation of advancing German armies. This was once again the case for the French and the Allied forces in 1916. To experience one of the more seminal moments of the war on French soil, I hire a private tour company to take me two hours north of Paris to one of our many stops showcasing the Somme offensive of 1916. Sunken craters, narrow trenches, and waterlogged fields would await me in my wheelchair, but I was determined to get the most out of this tour and power through whatever accessibility concerns I would face. First stop, the Beaumont Hamel Battlefield and the Newfoundlander Museum. Beaumont Hamel is situated near the northern end of the 45-mile-kilometer front to be assaulted by the French and British on the early morning of July 1, 1916. Supporting Scots, Canadians, would follow in supported, coordinated waves. These forces would be facing an entrenched and determined German force. From the parking lot, you are greeted by the familiar tones of an English-speaking tour guide, a college-age study abroad Canadian who will introduce you to the memorial grounds and the museum. The wheelchair accessibility is fairly good along the paved path leading through the century-old grass-covered trench works leading to the impressive elk statue on a rocky mount, one of six such monuments in France and Belgium dedicated to the service and loss of the Newfoundlanders. The zigzag trench walkways are not wheelchair accessible, but you can get very close to inspect them and take in the perspective of the position to no man's land. It was here, July 1st, 1916, the British 29th Infantry went over the top across a field of death. The same field I'm wheeling across now, 100 plus years later. The orchestrated attack, following the explosion of the Hawthorne Ridge Crater, was aimed to disorient the German lines, yet it resulted in chaos. From this point, the fog of war negated the English attack. Objectives were not achieved for successive waves of force and communication lines were mostly destroyed, all playing a part in what was yet to come. The coordinated offensive against the German lines would prove disastrous. The Germans were prepped and ready and laying down relentless machine gun fire. Nonetheless, at 8.45 a.m., the 1st Newfoundland and the 1st Essex received their orders to move forward, earlier than expected, with the goal to occupy the enemy's first trench. At 9.15 a.m., the moment of their crucible was upon them. Halfway down the slope, an isolated tree marked the area where the enemy's fire was particularly concentrated. This danger tree was all that was left on the field to be used as a marker of distance in no man's land. The danger tree today is a replica of that important marker. As I wheel across the middle of this field, I feel a sense of being totally exposed to the openness of no man's land. This tree was their, their point of contact, this yeah. is what they looked at. So we call that tree a uh, danger tree because also that tree marks the maximum advance in the no man's land of the new Fernandes. On July 1st, it went not further deep. So right behind me here is the last tree you can see here before you get into no man's land. And uh, not much to look at, but uh, it was the only point of reference for the Newfoundlanders to, just to uh, see if they can make it this far. And they did, um, they got this far. But I think what's important here is to see that um, where I'm sitting would be a, a death zone. These Newfoundlanders, nearly 800 in total, crossed into no man's land towards their fate. By the next morning, only 68 would report to roll call. 
the very far ridge you'll see right there, that's where the Germans were. And where we are right now is where the Newfoundland and Canadians were. And they had to make it across New no man's land. That is about maybe three football fields away. And I just can't see how that would even be possible. It was a stunning number of casualties and loss of life, forever remembered in monuments and memorials to the fallen. Heading south down the battle line of the Somme, our tour pulls into Tiepthal, the largest British war memorial in the world. It bears the names of more than 72,000 officers and men of the United Kingdom and South African forces who died in the Somme sector before 1918, many of those losses happening during the Somme Offensive of 1916. There is no doubt that this memorial is impressive. Um, you can see right behind me over my shoulder here that this is the largest monument to uh, the British uh, uh, dead that exists here on the continent. So in 1916, this, this battle was, was, was pretty epic and part of the Somme. This was really the, the biggest uh, uh, offensive that we had in the Somme. The British Commonwealth forces had lost about 19,000 men in one day to death being killed in action, not casualties. That number is about into the uh, upper 50s. Remember, there are three battles of the Somme, and this is one of them uh, that happened through the course of the last parts of the war. A difficult gravel walkway can make it challenging for chair users, but the effort is worth it. The memorial itself is not wheelchair friendly, but the museum is. That July 1st morning marked the greatest loss of life the British Army would ever suffer. There are thousands of heart-wrenching stories from both sides of the battle lines. However, one stands out as an example of what a death here at the Somme meant to a family back home. Captain Charles May of the 22nd Battalion Manchester Regiment was not only survived by a wife and daughter, but also immortalized by his correspondence to his loved ones on the eve of his death at the Somme. World War I was a conflict on a global scale pitting nations and empires against each other, but it was easy to overlook the personal sacrifice and loss of the individuals that fought and died on the seas, in the air, and on the battlefields. Not to mention the loved ones back home that suffered greatly. We can measure collateral damage in many ways, but the lasting familial effects of the war, from the trenches to the home front, were wounds that lasted generations. No soldier wants to think the letter they are writing home is the last one but many had to come with that sober realization throughout the war. Captain Charles May of the 22nd Battalion Manchester Regiment was one such man that wanted to be reunited with his wife and baby, but also knew that his dedication to his duty could forever sever those earthly ties. On June 17, 1916, Charles writes home. I must not allow myself to dwell on the personal. There is no room for it here. Also, it is demoralizing but I do not want to die. Not that I mind for myself. If it be that I am to go, I am ready. But the thought that I may never see you or our darling baby again turns my bowels to water. My one consolation is the happiness that has been ours. But it is the thought that we may be cut off from each other which is so terrible, and that our babe may grow up without my knowing her and without her knowing me. It is difficult to face. God bless that child. She is the hope of life to me. My darling, au revoir. It may well be that you will only have to read these lines as ones of passing interest. On 
on the other hand, they may well be my last message to you. If they are, know through all your life that I loved you and baby with all my heart and soul, that you two sweet things were just all the world to me. I pray God I may do my duty, for I know, whatever that may entail, you would not have it otherwise. Nearly two weeks later, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, Charles May went over the top. He suffered massive wounds from exploding shrapnel. On July 1st, 1916, Charles May died. Commonwealth soldiers shared in the sacrifice, ranging from the 1.3 million strong India Regimental soldiers to the battle-hardened Anzac Corps. It is here on our last stop in the Somme that we focus on the troops from Australia and New Zealand. The multi-million dollar Sir John Monish Centre is just outside Velers Bretonneau. This fully accessible modern museum is an amazing mix of artifacts, multimedia displays, and interactive history showcasing the role of the Australian and New Zealand soldiers in the Great War. Many Anzac descendants followed through on their commitment to pay their respects to the Great War troops. Luke Kenneth Bradley made such a trip with his wife from Sydney, Australia to northern France in 2018 in search of history connected to his grandfather's service a century earlier. I, I don't know a lot about his service history, but I found out that he fought in the Battle of Somme, which was um, a very big battle in Australian military history, um, as well as being involved in um, the Battle at Villers Bretonneau. And his role was mainly an ammunition supplier. So he would run up and down the front line um, using a horse and cart or by hand and deliver ammunition to the machine gun posts on the front line. Luke Bradley, like so many Anzac descendants, came to France to be a bit closer to the historic tragedy of the Great War. And it is very enlightening and I feel very proud, uh, as all Australians do, I believe, we're, we're very proud of our military history, especially our um, World War I veterans. I believe they hold a very special place in our hearts because of the, the amazing sacrifice that they had to go through to, um, to give us what we have today. It's quite incredible Like to have someone in my family who survived all that is very, very, very special. I watched Luke take in the gravity of loss of life given by his countrymen as he walks through the rows of graves here at the Somme. From July through November of 1916, the Anglo-French forces secured victory at the Battle of the Somme, but at great cost. Totals from the four months of fighting stood at over one million casualties and 300,000 lives lost, marking it as the bloodiest battle of the Great War. And yet the totals of Verdun that very same year were not too far behind. The tour heads back to Paris for a final day of exploration. I venture over to the Musée de l'Armée, an amazing museum of French military history. Tour groups of French school children are exposed to their nation's sacrifice and civilian privations experienced during the Great War. It is their birthright to know what the cost of war meant for the French Republic and the importance of striving for diplomacy in solving modern-day conflicts. Undoubtedly, hard lessons of history to take in. I have a great respect for that generation. Uh, that had to live through that, not only the soldiers, but the civilians, and everyone affected. Uh, it was a, an, a, an 
a traumatic experience, let's put it that way. And to uh, relive it and uh, listen to the voices from history, it really gives you pause. As I leave the museum, I see several aged French veterans of the Second World War being honored on this day. It is yet another reminder of the bitter legacy created by the First World War that was visited upon succeeding generations. I start to think about where things stand after the Somme and Verdun. 1916 was a bloodbath, and 1917 would be a year of doubling down on the war of attrition. The Russian Revolution would knock out an ally, whereas German unrestricted U-boat warfare helped to galvanize a new foe in the form of the United States. A window for a peace agreement shrank by the day in 1917. Now it was a race for the Central Powers to provide a knockout punch to the Allies before the Americans could arrive. But it is midway through 1917 that Past Access revisits the region of Flanders for a special kind of hell known as Passchendaele. The Allies and Germans suffered a combined 500,000 casualties, many obliterated by shellfire or drowned beneath the waterlogged fields. Part of the issue was the epic 10-day British artillery barrage of 3,000 guns on German lines for what resulted in little effect other than creating a crater-riddled battlefield. To make matters worse, this would destroy the Flemish drainage system that kept the sea from taking back the land. Combine the problems with the early August rainy season and you have a swamp-like condition grinding things to a halt. Yet that would not stop the Canadian and Anzac forces from joining the British on diversionary tactics only to be counterattacked by the Germans in this hellish quagmire of give and take, surrounded by water and mud. It was mud, mud everywhere. Mud in the trenches, mud in front of the trenches, mud behind the trenches. Every shell hole was a sea of filthy oozing mud. I suppose there is a limit to everything but the mud of Passchendaele, to see men keep on sinking into the slime, Dying in the slime, I think it absolutely finished me off. J.W. Palmer, 26th Brigade Royal Field Artillery. All sides on this massive conflict used animals to ride into battle, hold munitions, serve as mascots, and more importantly, carry needed messages across the battlefield. In many ways, these animal combatants were the unsung heroes of the Great War, but it came at a great cost for these animal brothers-in-arms. Some of these animals actually did some other great things with communication, being a mascot, um, serving the purpose as a weapon, like, like the wild boar. Some of the most important animals were the carrier pigeon. Uh, the carrier pigeon was used uh, to deliver messages when telephone lines were cut by the enemy forces and um, were used also to uh, send back uh, inform information on tactics. War horses were used uh, for, to pull wagons and artillery from that point on and that usually was a death sentence because of the exhaustion factor. The carrier pigeon is something we're going to talk about right now. We'll go back to Washington DC to the Smithsonian, to the American History Museum, to take a look at Sergeant Stubby, a bull terrier mascot, uh, that was awarded numerous uh, medals for the 101st Infantry for the United States, as well as Cherami that was awarded the medals for saving the Lost Battalion, the American Lost Battalion, during World War I. In a small, unassuming corner of the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C.,
stands a modest stuffed pigeon upon a perch. This is the heroic carrier pigeon, Cherami. By the way, a French name for dear friend. She would earn this moniker through her efforts to deliver a frantic message to the American artillery that were accidentally bombing their own troops during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive of 1918. So you can see here behind me is the exhibit for World War I and America's involvement uh, in the war. And you'll see a taxidermied bird right here by the name of Cherami who helped rescue the lost battalion of American soldiers um, that advanced too far beyond their lines and were being shelled by their own American uh, artillery. Nearly 550 men from the 101st American Division were in desperate straits, facing a far larger German force. Major Charles Whittlesey wrote this frantic message to attach to Cherami. Our artillery is dropping a barrage directly upon us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Cherami took flight, and the Germans tried shooting her down and were nearly successful. Cherami lost a leg an eye and was badly shot through her wing but still managed to find her way to the American artillery 25 miles away in 30 minutes and delivered the needed message. Jeremy saved these Americans and helped the Yanks hold the line against the Germans. For this, Jeremy was awarded France's highest military honor, the Croix de Guerre. U.S. General Black Jack Pershing provided first-class attention to Jeremy on her way back to America to recover. Cherami died in the summer of 1919, but today you can pay your respects in this museum in Washington, D.C. Cherami was indeed a dear friend to her servicemen. Our last stop on this journey takes us to Prague in the Czech Republic. Under the thumb of the Austro-Hungarian Empire 100 years ago, the Czechoslovaks were caught in between societies and cultures, pulling them apart. One side, the Greater Danube Empire, on the other side, a pull towards a pan-Slavic movement. The Great War would force many Czechs and Slovaks to choose sides. Modern-day reenactors commemorate the unique contribution the Czechs and Slovaks made to one of the more interesting stories of the Great War. The Czechoslovak legionnaires battled to the sea. When the war broke out in 1914, most of these soldiers were drafted into the Austro-Hungarian forces an aging empire not quite ready for the war ahead of them struggled as loss of life and national cohesion disappeared, inspiring many to desert their positions in the trenches for the Entente forces. Over 100,000 Czechoslovaks joined the Allies from Italy to France, but a majority crossed over to the Russian forces. Unlucky for them, the Tsar's hold on the Russian Empire was tenuous at best, and while the Great War raged on, a Russian civil war broke out. Stuck in the middle once again, the Czechoslovaks made the collective decision to get out of Russia and head home. The path to the west and the safety of the Entente was a no-go, as the Western Front was a bloodbath in 1917. The decision was to commandeer trains and fight their way east along the Trans-Siberian Railroad to the Pacific Ocean. The only way to do this 6,000-mile trek through the warring Bolsheviks and the White Armies was to fortify numerous trains with armor, guns, and a tenacity to get home. Today, the Legionnaires are honored in the Czech Republic as well as in Slovakia. A replica train comprising over 15 cars traveled across Central Europe from 2014 to 2019 as a rolling history museum to commemorate the war centennial. 
the tens of thousands of soldiers that were stuck behind lines uh, trying to get back to their newly formed uh, country of Czechoslovakia uh, was a challenging feat and it was full of attacks and um, uh, run-ins with the Bolsheviks um, trying to get out. Uh, it, some say even had an effect on uh, the killing of the Tsar and his family that the Bolsheviks thought it was time to get rid of them because the Czech Legion was on its way to liberate them. That's not a, a, a substantiated story but some still feel that that might have um, uh, sped up the execution. About uh, since 2015 we actually have this uh, exposition uh, in this mobile forum and we are traveling from town to town usually staying for 14 days or one week and trying to bring the history to as many people as possible. Some of the train cars served as modest but needed support for the soldiers. A mail service car, food prep compartment, tailor services, and in true Czech fashion, a pub and beer car. Mostly these trains looked like they were from a science fiction steampunk movie, armored to the teeth and protected by cannon and gun. I brought my son to this exhibit to help fill in his familial connections to his Czech ancestry. You see, my son Nathaniel had a great-great-grandfather on one of these trains in 1919, an officer in command of many legionnaires on train number two by the name of Sylvester Zazula. This is my great-great-grandfather, Sylvester Zazula, and he succeeded his mission because uh, he brought the men from Russia back home to Prague. They had to be very scared of the war that was happening. I really feel a connection to these people when I'm at these historical places. And I feel like a, some sort of pride. Officer Zazula, like many other Czech legionnaires, would make it out of the war-ravaged cities like Irkutsk to the Pacific port of Vladivostok to meet the British and American evacuation fleet. Some opting to head across the Indian Ocean and the Suez Canal, and others to board the American fleet making their way across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, San Francisco, St. Louis, New York, and then on to Europe. Many did not arrive to the newly formed Czechoslovakia until 1921. Nevertheless, the harrowing escape to Vladivostok and the evacuation home through the Suez Canal or across North America to Europe was an epic story that should never be forgotten. There is no doubt that the Russian Revolution had multiple effects on the war. Its contagion of ideology and required adjustment to military war aims began to weigh heavily upon Germany and the Central Powers. It was in 1918, the final year of the war, that the Germans needed a knockout punch in the form of the Ludendorff Spring Offensive. This Kaiserschlacht had to break the Allies, splitting them in two and seizing waterfront supply depots. Operation Michael consisted of 60 German divisions from three armies attacking along an 80-kilometer front between St. Quentin and Arras. Make no doubt about it, the Germans brought their A-game with an epic bombardment. However, this offensive did not provide the last gasp results the Germans were looking for. As 1918 bled out, the Allies, bolstered by the fresh American replacements, began their own 100 days offensive pushback. Victory after victory, the Allies advanced from the months of August until November. By November 11, 1918, at 11 a.m., the guns fell silent and the Great War was over.
World War I was a game changer for the powers that were. Empires fell, power brokers were created, reparations were demanded, and national borderlines were redrawn, thus sowing the seeds for an even larger conflict to take place not even a generation later. The wealthy and the poor of these nations shared in the immeasurable loss of youth and potential, a generation gone or forever scarred by this war. Both the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires fell apart, ceasing to exist. The Germans would have to rebuild under crippling war debt and sanctions. The Central Powers would suffer a combined 4 million military deaths. The Allied forces? 6.5 million, with the Russian military taking the largest total killed in action. Sobering numbers that are truly difficult to comprehend. The war to end all wars proved to be a sardonic phrase, and those who fought, suffered, and survived the Great War were left to wonder if it was worth the incalculable cost. So we want to thank you for joining us on the special World War I edition of Past Access. This has been uh, extremely interesting for me as, as a uh, podcaster and as an amateur historian to be able to keep my word to myself that the centennial was going to mean something to me uh, of World War I. And it has. Uh, podcasts and documentaries and books and film uh, and actually going out to places like Ypres and coming here to the Battle of the Somme in northern France uh, are all part of that process to give me a better handle on the tragedy that we saw in World War I. We want to thank you for joining us on Past Access. Remember, you can catch all of our shows on our YouTube channel as well as our audio podcasts to get an idea about what it's like to travel in a wheelchair throughout Europe and throughout the world, especially with historical context. And so always remember that we want to make sure that you have barrier-free travel through history here on Past Access. Once again, I'm Pete Coleman saying goodbye from France. Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dawn, proud members of the Agora Podcast Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.